Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. And I, again, said almost weekly. It's weekly. We're we're here all the time, and we are heavy on the hip, and we stay outside. Mm. Do you you get it? Heavy on the hip. Nope. No, is that some some rap reference? It doesn't matter. You guys don't get it. I'm Camille Foster. I do various things at a place called Freethink. I'm delighted to be here. Um, To my left, Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine. The last time we were together, you were in in a car, and there was a a rap music on the uh, radio. And I said, is this this person well-known? He said, dude, that's Drake. Yeah. That was pretty good. That was was just before you started putting Fiona Hill on a loop. Well, I was just watching the clips from 60 Minutes. Over. There's a lot to learn. <laughs> so, <laughs> much, so much to learn from her. I am so mystified by wisdom. your obsession with her, but continue. I continue your interaction. I made it very yeah. clear. Made uh, well, it very clear. I know, She's and strong. I'm still confused by it. I, I like a strong woman. Uh, Michael Moynihan, <laughs> who apparently doesn't like a strong woman from Vice News. Yeah. Also yeah. here to my right. How yeah. are you? You know, I, I'm good. I think the problem is I saw you guys yesterday. This is true. And I am I think I'm tired of you already. Well, no, yeah. actually what happened between then and now is that you're actually paranoid about I got paranoid. coronavirus. Deep, I'm deeply like, Yesterday you were literally shopping for tickets to go to Venice and I was mm-hmm. telling you maybe not a good yeah. idea. Yeah, mm-hmm. not Venice. And now. Venice. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> I wasn't going to Wuhan. Is there really, I was, really I was, great deals on tickets to Italy right now? Yeah, well, I didn't say it in, with, like, shock on my face. Or no. I, that's why I was looking. And I figured <laughs> I could quarantine myself in Tuscany. Yeah. And a nice house. A friend of mine has a house. It'd be nice. It'd be yeah. nice, you know. But you guys ruined it for me. And then we got an email today because um, tonight we're going to have some drinks with um, some listeners mm. uh, after the Soho Forum debate between Tim Wu and Richard Epstein. And um, someone, one person, uh, or maybe it was two people, sent emails saying, it would be great to see you, but we're backing out because I'm afraid of the coronavirus. So then yeah. I was like, oh, my God, we have very smart listeners. And that, that, that terrified me, too. We also have some listeners who are completely insane. So <laughs> well, let me bring in the rest of the folks in the yeah. room. Our, our, our very good friend, Anthony Fisher, is in the building. How are you, Fisher? Doing well. Thank you good. very much. Does various things at a place called Insider. And I don't know what those things are, mm-hmm. but it's fine. Other time. It's fine. It doesn't yeah. really matter. Uh, but our guest of honor is Mr. Rouse, Ross Dothat. Uh, Dothat. Ma- Sorry, but you know what? Yeah. The amazing well, thing is you mispronounced Ross. Ross. You know what? <laughs> I almost yeah. Ross. Let me try it again. Ross Dothat. That's Boom. right. That's right. I got it right. That was At terrific. least I that didn't go terrific. with do I have literally never had my first name. That's amazing. This is the greatest. You know what is Already, was, this is a peak life experience. Yeah. I was retired now. So intimidated by this by your last name that I yep. totally screwed up the first thing. <laughs> yeah. Plus, also, I have Matt sitting to my left who has so many different iterations mm. on your name. Although his favorite is Ross Dudehat. Yes. 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 Now, I, there there I are a lot of so many times excellent mispronunciations yeah. Yeah. of my name. I'm really a gift <laughs> fifth grade boys yeah. who want to make fun yeah. of you the world over. Yeah. Basically. And grown men in pink shirts and pink ties. <laughs> if like you and Sohab Armari go on tour together, it's going to be really bad. Yeah. I should not be the hype man for that one. No. Like, so yeah. Rob's name is not complicated, by the no, way. I know. It's I know. At all. Yeah. You can't do it. Yeah, Matt won't get it right. right. It yeah. doesn't really matter. Well, it's, it's a pleasure to have everyone in the room, um, and we're going to talk about plenty of things. There's a lot of current event stuff that's worth 
contemplating right now as we talk, the stock market is in complete disarray uh, because of the coronavirus, which is appropriate because the global markets are mm-hmm. in complete disarray, as is most everything else. Our politics is all screwed up. Apparently, someone at CPAC was contaminated and was shaking hands with other people. Um, a chain that seems like it might actually make its way to the president of the United States. Yeah. Um, and we're still not testing very many people in this country for coronavirus. So there's very good reason to suspect that some of the presidential hopefuls that are out there in the field shaking hands. Can I point out that Matt said, men. Matt said, uh-huh. I'm sorry, I'm going to blow up your spot uh-huh. here. Matt was not wishing death upon anyone. But Matt did say he really did hope Trump get crazy. <laughs> I did not say that. You did say absolutely did. No, no, no. I, you said, I said you. I was accusing you of wanting that. <laughs> oh, I thought we were buddies on this one. Well, we, <laughs> well, there, there was this some, mismanagement. I mean, the least we could do is give him a bit of coronavirus. It's a touch. Well, there was some debate about which which one of the presidential candidates might be the most likely to contract coronavirus, given all of their advanced ages. And I don't know that we should speculate about it wildly right mm. now. Just except, say that. except that you right, said Bernie. I, yeah. I said that he seems like the most likely to get it. But Why? the reason, see, I didn't get to explain. Okay. The reason is because he has all of these incredibly enthusiastic crowds. Yeah. And I always see these images of him out there touching the crowd. Yeah. And I don't know that mm. he is actually doing all the things necessary immediately after. Yes. To be safe. Now, Donald Trump also has enthusiastic crowds. But he is he was on a, famously he was on a, rope line this a germaphobe. In, famously. I, in, in Florida, he was out there. He went straight from tweeting about how all yeah. is well to shaking, pressing the flesh in Florida. And, he's and I didn't see any, any didn't Purell, see any, not yeah. even the Andrew Cuomo we knockoff yeah, yeah, Purell, yeah. not the New York State's original Purell. homemade Purell. <laughs> yeah. We Which eventually, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that, like, Andrew Cuomo isn't the most popular politician on this podcast. But I have to say, <laughs> I don't think Cuomo's done a terrible job. You know, he and de Blasio, they, they give people information. They invented their own Purell. Like, those are two things. Two good things, yeah. Two good things that no. Like, if Trump had opened a factory making N- Trump N95 it would, it would go out of business in, like, six months. <laughs> well, there's that, there's, there's that problem. Fair Trump enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Trump uh, actually, I, I'm in, in rare agreement about any nice thing being said. Then we'll see what happens because, like, the— Nothing horrible has happened yet in New York. It's just this like 140 odd cases. You no, know, we're running the tables today, right? State with the highest I saw this afternoon is now New York. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, sweet. Is that right? Yeah, I think they doubled the numbers. I, I, I'll look at it. I can, let me confirm that and just yeah. not fly off. But they have it. been, uh, they've been actually pretty transparent about what's going on. You know, as a parent of, of kids who are in the school system, like you're pretty well informed about what's going, what's happening. We'll see if it gets really stressed out, but they haven't been be clowning themselves unlike some other politicians in the country. Well, perhaps before we get to the pandemic that is likely to completely extinguish life on Earth, we could talk a bit about Ross's new book, The Decadent Society, how we became (laughs) the victims of our own success. This is a different kind of apocalyptic story for us to all get into. And I I would say it's it's a somewhat at least depressing tome, Ross, as all Jeremiads are. There is a a warning here. You detail the various things that are going wrong and you talk about the different ways to think about this this thing called decadence, which it might be useful for listeners. And oftentimes I will try to summarize someone's book here, but I'm going to put the onus on you um, for you to define these the difference between this low and high form of decadence and what it means in the context of our society broadly. Sure. I appreciate it. Um, 
So basically there's – I think the common definition of decadence is just something that isn't really good for you, that's incredibly pleasurable, that you do too much of, right? Mm-hmm. So weekends in Vegas, bondage dens, listening to podcasts, all decadent mm-hmm. in that definition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to offer a slightly more rigorous maybe definition or maybe just slightly more confusing. That can be for the reader to decide. <laughs> but I'm stealing it from Jacques Barzun, who's this incredibly talented cultural historian who wrote a book called From Dawn to Decadence. And he basically argued that decadence, it's not an insult. It's a technical description of what happens to societies that are rich, successful, powerful, and start to get old. And their institutions start to creak and their horizons start to narrow and their intellectual debates go in circles and they become sort of exhausted in their worldviews and futile in their activities, futile, not futile. I mean, they could be futile too, <laughs> right? And so, the, so I sort of try and distill that down to the idea that decadence represents stagnation at a high level of wealth and power. You can't be decadent if you, you know, haven't achieved anything. So stagnation, drift, repetition, and a little bit of decay once you're rich and powerful. And I start the book with the moon landing and basically argue that since 1969 or so, along a bunch of sort of different but ultimately entangling indicators, we've been getting decadent. We've had uh, economic deceleration. We've had technological stagnation everywhere except Silicon Valley. We've got political decadence. I think everybody agrees that's the uncontroversial argument, right? Sort of gridlock and sclerosis in D.C., we have demographic decadence because every Western society has below replacement fertility, so we're just getting slowly older. And then the most sort of the least rigorous um, part is when I argue we're sort of going in circles culturally, that we're sort of trapped in the imaginations of the baby boom generation and can't get out and that our whole culture is like – our whole pop culture at least is like the Star Wars uh, sequels, the sort of derivations of, of something earlier. So yeah, it's – so the problem is – on the one hand, it's a depressing book. At the same time, when I was first doing talks, I would say, okay, it's depressing, but here's the good news. I think it's actually more sustainable than people think, in meaning I don't think we're going to you know, have collapse into civil war. I'm pretty skeptical of the civil war scenarios, mm-hmm. catastrophes, and so on. And as long as it's sustainable, you can imagine having a renaissance without having to go through the unpleasant dark age business first. The problem is since the coronavirus has gone wild, people aren't as convinced by that part of my argument. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm basically saying, yeah, these are all the bad things that got us to this position, but maybe it'll go on for a while. And everyone's saying, well, or maybe we'll all be dead in six months because, because because our institutions are decadent. And I do think that um, to the extent that the coronavirus kills more people than it should, it will be because of the trends that I'm describing in the book. Um, so, yeah, so that's a dark place to end. And I, I, I want to say something lighter and more optimistic, but, but maybe a, you can tease it out of me. What, yeah. are, what are some other, what are some historical comps to walk us through? So, you know, is, is uh, you know, fill in the blank France in 1930. Is that a decadent country or in the 1930s? Like, or what are, how can we look at this? Is it the Roman Empire? Is it, what? what is it so that we can maybe try to Sure, so, so the extreme, you know, the sort of comprehensive examples would be, you know, the Ottoman Empire during the period when everybody called it the sick man of Europe was decadent. 
um, the Chinese Empire in the 150 years, you know, that encompasses the Opium Wars and sort of European powers um, basically exploiting it is decadent. Rome from somewhere in the first or early second century until its fall is pretty decadent. Um, and then I think more recent case studies, you often have like partial decadence, right? So Weimar Germany is clearly politically decadent under the way I'm describing things. It's not clear that it's culturally decadent. It's actually pretty culturally dynamic, which is part of why it's such an interesting But to, to some people, that was, of course, decadence. I mean, I mean that was the right. main, one of the main cultural charges when the, the, the Nazis, Nazis were, were yep. sort of reforming cultural life and putting everything under, under the banner of the sort of the Reichskulturkammer, you know, and, and you know, the degenerate art, sort of very similar to calling it decadent art. And the word decadent, you see, usually associated at the time with Weimar arts and jazz. And I mean, so when people make that claim, that when, when extremists like that make a claim of decadence, I mean, how do you kind of separate that out from, from your own definition? And how are they defining it where they're wrong? I mean, I think they're, they are defining it in a way that assumes a kind of moral judgment. And even though in my day job as a Catholic New York Times columnist, people <laughs> sometimes accuse me of being a moralist, I'm trying to avoid that kind of like this X is decadent because it's bad, because it's morally corrupt, right? So, you know, I think the late 1960s and especially the 1970s, for instance, were, you know, had a certain amount of moral corruption. I think that's, I think that's a fair description of the, you know, the 70s. Um, I don't think they were really decadent because they, under my definition, because they were a period when, uh, you know, the depravity coincide coexisted with and sometimes fed into a lot of real creative artistic ferment right so in that sense i'm sort of walling off a little bit some of the normative claims that leads people on the right and the left to say you know this form of art is decadent i'm saying actually real decadence is not gross immorality it's more sort of boredom and repetition so like in sex right like um the sexual culture of like Studio 60, whatever it was, right, is not is not decadent under my definition. Online pornography Kurt, is. Kurt Anderson? Yeah. Right. <laughs> 54. Right, 54. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you know. You know I knew number. you were going to do a different number that in there, number. but I'm sure, yeah. that, that's, I'm sure that happened there. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> we can edit that out. No, that's good. Yeah. I like it. So, yeah, so that's, that. I mean, that's, and again, Maybe this isn't exactly the right I, – I feel like I'm trying to use the word almost to describe a problem that has no name in the way that, mm. you know, Betty Friedan famously tried to define the problem facing American women in the 1950s. But there's this sense in our society, on the one hand, you know, I feel like there's this – there is this sense of sort of ennui and a feeling of looming catastrophe hanging over everything. And then on the other hand, you have guys like Steven Pinker running around being like, what are you guys talking about? Things mm -hmm. have never been better. The GDP, you know, life expectancy, et cetera. We've – you know, capitalism has brought the third world into, mm -hmm. into upward mobility and so on. And I, I think my definition sort of sits where those two realities meet, that we can both be incredibly rich and – Life is not that bad and right. also feel this loss of dynamism and vigor and possibility. A, a quick definitional thing. I don't want to get uh, sort of dislodged here, but when you're talking about Weimar and saying that it is certainly politically decadent, what would you say is the difference between political decadence and dysfunction? And is there a difference? Because, I mean, I think of I've never associated uh, decadence with 
the the political culture of the Weimar Republic dysfunctional for sure. Yeah, I think I think I'm defining it to mean, you know, dysfunction is part of it. It is sort of it is stalemate. It's a politics of stalemate where it is impossible under the existing system for anyone to one pass a successful policy program, two to achieve a clear and meaningful majority, and so on. So all of the things that like conservatives. If the if I'm disagreeing with some of the conservatives who pointed to jazz and said that's decadent, I'm agreeing <laughs> with some of the conservatives who pointed to the republic and said the system isn't the system just isn't working. It doesn't mm-hmm. you can't actually govern the country this way. The problem is that there are worse things, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they and they went in for one of them, and that's I think true in our own era, right? That sort of you know I'll, both on the populist right and on the socialist left. I think there's a discontent with decadence and a desire for a different kind of politics, which I'm sympathetic towards. At the same time, you know, I mean, you don't want to end up with the Maduro regime or its right-wing analogs mm. just because you're tired of stalemate. Stalemate is better than better than some things. So before we move on to some of the, the implications of the decadence that you see prevailing in in the United States today in pretty much every stage of society, productivity, demographics, politics, and culture. Um, I wonder if we could talk a bit about how you think the United States came here because your your book, it, it contains obviously a lot of original thinking here, but you also survey a lot of thoughtful people who have been looking at this same sort of phenomena from different di- yep. directions. So Peter Thiel, um, Tyler Cowen, Thomas Piketty are all folks who get name checked here and that you sort of go through some of their work. I, I think they they seem to have different perspectives, obviously, yes. on how we arrived here. What is your take having surveyed that landscape on what's going, what's gone wrong to get us to this point, or perhaps what's gone right. Cause I know that there are some potentially some benefits to, to, yeah, I mean, part of it is that I we've mean, arrived at. Right. So part of it is just, um, the Cowan, for instance, right. In his, in his, um, book called the great stagnation, which mm-hmm. is basically about the, the economic piece of what I'm writing about. The subtitle is something like how America ate all the low hanging fruit and ate its low-hanging fruit and got sick and will eventually recover. But the idea of low-hanging fruit that Cowan has, I think, is useful. The idea that you can make immense gains in economic growth and productivity just by putting everybody through high school. Sure. Right? Refrigeration. Um, Yeah, refrigeration. You can make immense gains just by, in the case of, you know, westward expansion, you can, you know, give people arable farmland and, yeah. and put them to work. They're, they they're, only get to do that once, though. Right. So there's a lot. So there's a bunch of things that America, especially, but the developed world generally, got to do once that had really big, really big economic gains. And then somewhere in the late 20th century, we reached a point where, you know, there just wasn't that low hanging fruit anymore. And the things you're trying to do to sort of replicate it turn out to be harder. So it's harder to give everyone a college education than it was to give everyone a high school education. And indeed, it's ambiguous whether that's even a good policy program, whether that gets, you know, whether sending everybody to four-year schools actually reaps you reaps you big dividends or right. makes people happy. So, right. so that's, I think that's clearly part of it. And that's sort of, I think there's a question hanging over the technological side, right, which is, are we in a bottleneck or are we approaching a ceiling? So clearly, there were a set of technical problems that we solved that had huge impacts on human life. Refrigeration, right? You just mm-hmm. mentioned, you know, indoor plumbing, the light bulb, and so on. And 
And we've, to some extent, run out of things that are that simple and transformative over the last 30 years, again, outside communication and, and simulation. We haven't had a huge transportation breakthrough. We haven't, you know, we're working on energy alternatives, but we haven't figured out some sort of green energy revolution yet. Um, and so some people think there's just sort of a limit on what we can actually do, right, which is possible. But you could also say, no, this is a bottleneck. And in 20 years, we will have self-driving cars and CRISPR will have come online and we'll be, you know, dealing with genetic conditions and letting mm -hmm. people live an extra 25 years and will no longer be decadent. And and I'm not honestly sure of the answer. I sort of toss around both both possibilities. But I think the next – a lot of what happens later in the 21st century will be determined by whether are we hitting natural limits? Have we picked all the fruit we can ever reach or is there – you know, I'm mixing metaphors, but can you can you find a ladder to get up to the higher branches? Yeah, or no. Is it in in our you know uh, innate ability to even identify what fruit are? I mean, it's like uh, there isn't the, the problem with that metaphor. And I love mixing metaphors. Yes, uh, makes a lot of sense. <laughs> like to an apple, like a fine yes, apple. You do. <laughs> <laughs> makes a lot of sense to me. Um, no, like we don't know where shit comes from. Like, it, like, whoop, we have this now. We didn't have that before. Right. Uh, I, uh, I wonder. I wonder how much of this might be, or do you worry that some of this might just be what George Will has called just like the, uh, the uh, amazing difference between 2% growth and 3% growth? Like 2% growth just doesn't feel awesome. Like yeah. the, it just sort of, eh, I don't know. It's okay. It's, you know, things are getting kind of slowly better, but it just doesn't feel great. 3% like, yeah, look at us go. Look yeah. at us go. And And suddenly what feels like, um, you know, stagnation or, or decline or just a cramped overall feeling, which, I mean, hell of a lot of people were thinking that in 1978, 1979, and, and many other just like pick a, pick a year out, out of a hat. Um, you know, there were, there was always an Asian country that had figured it out and we had to learn from, if, if not stop, whether it's mm -hmm. Japan or China. And there's always, you know, like we've, we've hit our limits and then something changes and we stop talking like that for five years. Do you worry about that? I mean, worry, I mean, it'd be good. Yeah. <laughs> really? I mean, I'm not, I'm, I mean, I worry about it in that, you from know, I need to, I need to sell some books. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so 5% growth, 5% growth would be bad for my thesis. Yeah. Um, but. No, I mean, I, I, I want that. And you're right. We In this 50-year timeline I'm calling decadence, we've had spurts, one under Reagan and then especially one in the late 1990s, where we had 4% growth. And it felt different. The late 1990s, you have productivity growth. You have the internet coming online. And the Matrix. The movie, no, the, I mean, <laughs> again, you can't prove this, but the movies were better. They were better in 1999. Absolutely Ab correct. Peak, peak year post post golden age 1970s. So we've had these these sort of moments when it seems like we're escaping decadence and then we've tended something has gone wrong and we've fallen back in. And I guess what I I would say two things. One will is right that 2% growth is not stagnation. Like over time 2% growth makes the world a better place and you can see this in other areas if you have, you know, like with cancer, we haven't achieved the great cancer cure that people expected in the 70s, but right. we've made some grinding right. progress. So as long as you have that kind of growth, you can make some grinding progress. Still, you know, you go back to the post-war US and you say, look, we have 5% growth with barely any budget deficits at all. And today we have 2% growth and we're subsidizing that with insanely large budget deficits. And that, 
again, I don't think the budget deficits are maybe, are the wrong policy choice per se. Interest rates are low. You know, it's you do what you have to do. But what it it suggests that something has structurally changed, where we're now a rich society paying ourselves to feel richer, as opposed to generating real dynamism without sort of that overlay of of government spending. So, yeah, I think yeah, something it's two percent growth is good, but something has changed from the not-so-distant past to where we are now economically. And in defense of that, of that worldview like, um, or that analysis, we oftentimes uh, identify decadence after a bad thing happens. The 20s looked super decadent after the Great Depression hit really hard. Like, my God, we were just flapping around, um, doing all this, like, <laughs> that's, we didn't care about the world. But, you that's, know? Low, but that's low decadence, that's low, not yeah. the high decadence. Yeah. Right. 20, the 20s aren't decadent. 20s are, 20s are fine. 20s are 20s are dynamic. The Gilded Age also not decadent in my definition. This is this is why, you know, this is why this book is just going to end up confusing people. <laughs> I'm going to regret it, but I've I've changed the whole I've, This is probably a conversation you should have had about 8 months ago. I, you know, nobody in the publishing house brought it up. They were like you know, they were like you'll be fine. you people will believe what decadent they'll believe what you say it means. And um but but yeah, I mean I think the I think there is, and again, we're having this conversation as the coronavirus hits. So there is, in certain ways, you know, the, there there is always a paradigm shift, right? Mm-hmm. When something bad happens and you realize that the growth you were having was not quite what you would have expected it to be. And it, or, or was not quite as real as you thought it was. And again, that, I think, feeds into my argument in the sense that, like, if this is a real recession we will we will look back and say well that 2% growth under trump felt pretty good mm-hmm. but in hindsight was headed for a fall and wasn't even as good as the growth in the 1990s or the 1960s before it i think and, essential and me- essential to the argument that ross is making though is in understanding that a lot of the economic gains that we've seen and the productivity improvements that we've seen have happened in particular places where the gains have been really concentrated in a few hands with these technology companies, Facebook being like the new GM, but only employing a tenth of the people that a GM might have employed. So that is part of the problem. Then secondarily, the the nature of the innovation that we're seeing in some cases, it's again, like some sort of technology information oriented uh, benefit that is again, concentrated to a particular group, but also the possibility that some of the gains we've seen, as you just mentioned, Ross, are, are fake. Like the, the growth of a company like Uber, for example, it's not clear that this is a sustainable business model. In fact, all of the indications are that it might not be. Um, like in the same thing that we've seen with WeWork, they're running these massive deficits as they have been for a very long time. They're doing it with rather cheap money on offer from VCs. Uh, I've seen the phrase free money used at certain points. Um, so that... All of that creates a circumstance that's rather challenging. But I, I want to see if we can advance the conversation a little bit because we've talked about sort of the, the four horsemen, the stagnation and the sterility and the sclerosis and the repetition. What's that accent? Yeah, oh, was that, that an accent? Yeah, it was an accent. That's just Camille. Was, I don't know. There was a I'm bit sorry. of a growl. There was a yeah. growl. I, mean, I thought it was sorry. Power, I thought it was That was powerful. kind of a, that was, was like powerful. your decadent powerful accent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that is. It's a little Rick Ross. for the audio. Um, (laughs) Well, we talked about those four things. Um, I I wonder if we can get into sort of the the second section of the book where you talk about um, sustainable decadence, um, among other things. But that section of the book is probably the only place where I got a little bit queasy 
when you talked about giving decadence its due. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about what you saw there. And if it's helpful, I could prime you by telling you what about it made me feel tell, a little tell, bit tell me, Tell me what made you queasy. Well, I'll tell you. It's, I think you opened the chapter by talking about people who are probably following along with you and thinking to themselves, well, you know what? This decadence thing doesn't sound like such a bad thing. Yep. In some respects, like we've had too much growth and we're endangering our planet and there is the climate catastrophe. And if, in fact, we've actually had all of these good things happen over the course of the last couple hundred years and we've reached this place where, you know, we've got relatively low rates of crime. There's a pretty good amount of wealth out there. We've got cars and all kinds of other cool stuff and medical technology. Stasis is an option that we can manage our decadence, that we can manage this level of stagnation and make certain that we find ways to perhaps redistribute the gains and just protect what we have here. Um, But that sort of impulse to protect what we have, um, I I presume, is what animates the fears of populists, that things aren't really getting better anymore. In some respects, they're starting to get worse. And to the extent we find ourselves in a place like that, I just can't imagine any circumstance under which uh, a citizenry would actually be content with that, that they could ever learn to be content with that, that they could elect leaders with the specific mandate of, hey, just just try to keep everything from falling apart. Just keep the wheels on the bus a little bit longer. I think you really only have two options because of entropy, like political, mm-hmm. philosophical entropy. You either are growing or you are declining. Like stasis is, in fact, a form of decline. Um, and I know that when you were writing that section, you were speaking to people's concern rather yeah. than expressing your own sensibilities. But certainly as I was reading that, I was like already leaping towards the next towards section the next, of the book. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, I mean, but I think a lot of people wouldn't, right? Which is why I yeah, wrote it. I mean, sure. I, I think there's, you know, there is a strong conception in the Western world that, um, you know, growth has become cancerous um, and that climate change requires maybe not budgetary austerity, but sort of austerity in everyday living. Um, there's a book that came out by a German economist after I finished writing my book called Fully Grown that basically made a version of this case. It said, you know, yeah, economies – I mean, it's a, in a way a version of the George Will argument that you were channeling, but basically saying 1.5% growth for an advanced economy is fine and we shouldn't – you know, and we should just want other countries to advance as far as we have and then we can all be fully grown together. Right. Um, and I mean, I basically have two views. One is that 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 sort of politics of stasis is better than a sort of destructive, let's tear it all down, you know, Tyler Durden in Fight Club, another 1999 movie, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, like, it's better, better stasis than some of the sort of revolutionary alternatives. Because like Michael was saying, the politics of anti-decadence can be very dangerous, right? You get, you know, not just the Nazis, but World War One. you get some of the mood after 9-11, which was very much like decadence is over now and we're going to go, you know, spread democracy to the Islamic world. So I, wanna ma- I wanted to make that point. But then at the same time, yeah, I, I basically agree with you. I think that I think you can have stasis longer than people think, but it's a stasis that will include a certain amount of dis- decay and a certain sort of what I think I call something like the slide towards dystopia. Mm-hmm. So it's not that you're like, you know, you give up on growth and the next day it's Aldous Huxley or, you know, uh, Brave New World. But you sort of slide in that direction. And I think 
the technologies we have right now, um, I think, encourage that in certain ways, that you can have a world where, you know, people sort of work out their discontents with decadence by playing video games or, by, you know, by sort of participating in vigorous activity that is, you know, not actually located in the real world or in politics, that people can be discontented with decadence and manifest that in how they behave on social media rather than in like political organizing or anything that might meaningfully change the world. And so I, when I imagine a, that kind of stasis, that's what I imagine happening. People sort of engaging more and more in sort of virtual role playing, actual politics and so, sort of social life withering a bit and things sort of sliding towards a dark place, but pretty slowly, so slowly that maybe you don't notice it till you end up end up there. Which one of these things, I mean, reading this book, is, it's, it's, it was interesting for me to try to read um, your level of worry on each, each one of these topics. I mean, of course, you have government, technology, you talk about pornography, um, fertility rates. Is there one area in which you're fretting more than the other areas. We say, you know, this one is something that I don't see being rolled back anytime soon. And, and it's going to, you know, precipitate this, this slide to horrible decadence. I mean, I think it's probably clear from reading the book that I'm most worried about this sort of, this sort of brave new world scenario where mm. things stabilize in a way that sort of slowly dehumanizing us and the drugs drugs yeah. become more sophisticated <laughs> video games become more sophisticated and we sort of accept this yeah this sort of decaying stability that loses basic human goods you know people people don't marry and have kids they sort of lose themselves in you know i compare it to the land of the lotus eaters right in mm. in odysseus and i don't think we're anywhere close to there to the darkest place yet but i think that's been the trend of the last 25 or 30 years right towards this like in teenage life right now teenage life in the u.s is safer than it's ever been mm. um in terms of whether you're gonna drive drunk or you know have sex or get, or pre get pregnant, pregnant all these things and yeah. these are all things conservatives were obviously very concerned about 30 years ago so in a way you could say well this is what conservatives wanted but those same kids are not sort of um well, one, they're more depressed and more anxious, seemingly, I think pretty clearly than even when I was in college. They're more likely to commit suicide. Um, and then they're, for now at least, less likely to fall in love, get married and have kids and sort of enter what a conservative would think of as sort of a normal trajectory towards yeah. human flourishing. And and so there's been this sort of trade-off of sort of more social stability than 30, 40 years ago, but maybe less happiness and less flourishing. So that's what I worry about the most. Again, like in terms of our ability to respond to threats, though, I think it's the sclerosis of institutions that's the most dangerous. So if you're worried about, again, the coronavirus or anything that could lead to mass extinction, true disaster, you should worry most about the inability of our institutions to function anymore. Is, is this a Catholic book? Sure. All my books are Catholic books. Are they all Catholic books? <laughs> yeah. Really? I'm, I'm Catholic, man. Yeah. yeah. They're all. I, but no, I, I mean, you can, can, can a Catholic person not write, can write a sort of non-Catholic book about politics? I mean, probably. Yeah, no, I don't. I mean, you mentioned Evelyn Waugh in the book. It's a universal church, yes. man. Yeah. It, covers, it covers everything. Well, you mentioned Evelyn Waugh in the book who could, after converting to Catholicism, I think in 1936, could never write a novel again that wasn't a Catholic novel, including right. Brideshead Revisited, which becomes explicitly a Catholic novel at the end of the book. But, um, yeah, I mean, I wonder because I can read this book as somebody who 
is not really a Catholic, but in and I can I can get that. What, is, what does that even mean? By the church. What do you mean? Yeah, okay. I, grew, I grew up. You grew up Catholic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you baptized. Yeah, that's Confer- all. Yeah, you confirm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, you're Catholic. You're yeah. as Catholic as I am. I man. think some people would we're disagree. Both, with you. We're both. We're both. We're both literally one confession away from being a. State this is where it goes grace, into that that right? flashback sequence from like two days ago, and then you're like, "That's not. You're not Catholic." <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's actually decadence. Yeah. Should have put me on the cover of the book. Um, no, I wonder that. I just wonder how much that because um, there's a lot of this stuff you don't. It's not explicit in the book in certain bits. But when I was I was reading with interest uh, the bit about fertility uh, rates in particular because I spent a lot of time in Europe and you hear a lot about this in Europe. Yep. Everybody's below replacement rate. And there are some people like actually libertarian types in Europe, like the Johan Norbergs and things very optimistic. They say, hey, you know, this is the positive thing about immigration is that those right. replacement rates are so low. And now they're high. And the populist right wing parties kind of arch an eyebrow and say, no, that's, yeah, not, exactly. that's not what we're interested in. That's I'm actually positive. glad you brought that up because that for me was one of the most uh, impressive and interesting sections of the book where you talk about demography and the challenges there and the surprising ways that that can predict whether or not you are living in a decadent society or um, and, and also some of the economic challenges that exist there, even with the benefits of immigration. So could you speak to that a little bit? As Michael? Yeah, I mean, um, so the dilemma is, right, one, as your birth rates fall, um, it does – there is sort of an obvious case for immigration as a way to sort of solve the technocratic economic problem, right? You need more workers to support your aging retired population. You bring them in from other countries – they get higher wages, retirees get better benefits. It's a win-win. Um, and I think you can see in Europe how that runs into problems. And in part, it runs into problems just for you know reasons of racism and bigotry. But it also runs into problems, I think, because as societies have fewer children, older people in those societies become more and more cut off from the future of their own society because they have fewer descendants, fewer inheritors. And when you combine that feeling of alienation with a literal transformation of the actual younger population, you get, I think, almost inevitably versions of the grand remplacement, you know, far right anxieties, right? No. The idea that, that this, this technocratic approach is actually somehow a plot to elect a new people. Um, and paradoxically, a society that has higher birth rates, native birth rates, I think will actually have an easier time assimilating immigrants because you won't have that sense that, you know, the future is being, you know, sort of given to new arrivals instead of to your own posterity. Well, let's talk about Israel a little bit because Israel is one of the, the countries that actually is, you know, above replacement rate. It's the it's – the, so Israel is the only rich, developed country that not only has a below – above replacement fertility rate but well above. If mm-hmm. replacement is 2, two 2.1, Israel is up above 3. And I mean I think – and what's interesting too is it's not just religious Israelis. It's not just the ultra-Orthodox having lots of kids. Secular Israelis – unlike anywhere else in the Western world, have have large families. And I think that suggests, I think pretty clearly, that there's something going on here about, you know, a sense of sort of, on the one hand, solidarity, on the other hand, sort of cultural mission joined to like a sense of threat, right? That if you have sort of a clear, if your society seems to, on the one hand, have a clear purpose, and on the other hand, 
in that case, the preservation of a people almost wiped out 100 years ago, and at the same time to have, you know, enemies contending with you for your very existence, that clearly creates some kind of condition that encourages people to think more about the future and have more kids. With, again, the problem being you can't just sort of magically translate that Mm -hmm. to societies that aren't in Israel's position. You can't say, all right, you know, from now on, America, we're going to say that Canada is our great enemy and we have to outbreed them. No one, no one would take you seriously. <laughs> it's like, it's like not a uh, bad idea, though. I mean, the Canadian, the Canadian menace is sort of underplayed, but um, that's a Do separate. you remember Jonah Goldberg's Bomb Canada piece from uh, National Review? I did, back, too. Back in the, the day. The golden, days, like the golden yeah. days of interventionism. Yes. When, when did I that was, have Mounties on the cover? Or? I think it might have. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think know, I, I remember it well. I, 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 wasn't it John Miller who wrote a book about the perfidious French? The French, our oldest, yeah. our oldest, our oldest enemy. enemy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, who turned out to be not so much our enemy in the long run. You know. uh, but like that, that uh, sense reminds me of people who are always really excited when, um, you know, voting rates are really high. Um, when voting rates are high. That means something really bad's going on, <laughs> mm. unless you're in yes. Australia. But mm. like, you know, it's just it's not, it's it's required. not good. <laughs> yeah, I actually want to come back to that in a minute. Um, but but quickly Earlier, we were talking a little bit about the 2% growth versus 3% growth, and we, we've already invoked uh, Tyler's book as well. And on that theme of us having gathered up all the low-hanging fruit already, like one of the, the most significant concerns that I have about the present political moment, and particularly the growing appeal of populism and socialism uh, within American politics, is the degree to which if we find ourselves in a period of low economic growth, whether or not that is something that is going to continue perpetually or we're just in a bottleneck. If we, out of fear, begin instituting policies or we're redistributing wealth and we're trying our best to sort of wring what we can out of the system to to just redistribute the things we've already gotten because we don't expect much more, it feels like we're at a very high likelihood of jeopardizing that 2% growth. And the difference between 1% and 2% yep, growth is, big. is substantial. And if you actually manage to screw things up enough with your revolution that you get zero or negative growth, that is not a small thing. Um, and I don't think most people have any appreciation for just what that means or any appreciation for what the particular qualities of, uh, of an economy and a politics are that actually yield you positive growth. Because that doesn't just happen on its own. Yeah, I no, I, I agree. And I, and I mean, I think if you look at, um, you know, the pattern of populism in in Europe, there there's I think the big danger is much closer to that than the sort of return of the 1930s scenario. Right. That um, that some of my liberal friends worry about. Mm-hmm. So the, it's not that the rise of fascism, right? It's not that Hungary is going to set out to you know reconquer its diaspora and impose you know a Hungarian empire on Eastern Europe. It's more God that, would they love to. Though. <laughs> God, God would they love to. Sure. I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying that those dreams have entirely died, but the but the broader pattern is yeah, sort of aging societies that want to keep what they have and you know don't want immigration because. It, it threatens their identity in some particular way. And you end up with sort of an inward-facing soft authoritarianism, which I think you can have on the left as well as the right. But that's the right-wing version. You end up like, um, you know, in Children of Men, right? In the, in the PD, There's a P.D. James novel and there's the movie by Alfonso Cuaron. 
And in the movie, these are both worlds worlds where people have stopped having babies entirely. Male fertility has vanished. Mm-hmm. So nobody has kids. And in the movie, it's like a world with lots of terrorism and immigrants in cages. And it's sort of this, you know, it's it's this sort of world on the brink of chaos. But in the novel, the dictator in England is – he calls himself the warden. And he's basically just running an old age home, mm. right? And I think that's that's I think that's the danger of both you know both populism and socialism in certain ways that it just ends up running running Western societies as old age homes um, without without actually doing anything to try and recapture dynamism and vigor. At the same time, I also think the smarter populists have a reasonable point that you know the right now the people saying we should be content with two percent growth and not try for 3% or something are often the centrists, right? The sort of respectable, you know, somewhere between Barack Obama and the Simpson-Bowles Commission, right, is, you know, or maybe the presidency of Joe Biden. There is that sort of, that quality of let's just sustain our slow growth rate to a lot of, you know, I think sort of centrist and elite discourse right now and the populists who are sort of casting about and saying, well, why can't we have an industrial policy? Why can't we rebuild manufacturing? All of these things. Some of their ideas may be bad, but they do at least have um, ambitions for a three or four percent growth society. Is it that, though? I mean, it's been manifesto season on in in your like uh, or on their slash your part of the right for like the last 18 months. How many goddamn manifestos we can read in like the American <laughs> you don't conservative have to read, you don't have to read that. And, like no, American greatness and American Matt feels he has to read. Them. <laughs> I don't know why. Searching, I want to know. For I want to know what they're coming okay. for. Well, they're coming for porn, which you started, yes. and now yes. they're which you talked about that. When he they did. take when they take the porn, but, you can curse, I, well, I just want to be clear. Name. I want to be clear that he didn't start the porn. He started the movement. Are you sure about that? Well, I don't know. I have a lot. I have a. Yeah. Well, talk about that. Talk about, talk about that a little bit, because I mean, in the book, you you talk about how you know the worst fears of the Andrea Dworkins and Catherine McKinnons and James Dobsons on both sides of the aisle turned out to be wrong. Right. That this was going to increase sexual violence, et cetera, et cetera. That didn't turn out to be true. But then you did write a column in 2018 uh, where it's in the headline said that let's, you wanted to ban ban porn. Ban porn. Yep. yep. Make the case to a room full of skeptics and in one case <laughs> a porn addict who I will not name. Yeah. I will not name Matt Welch. What? I won't. Why would I do that? <laughs> why would I do that to you? Um, yeah, m- m- make the case and give, give us the pricey of why why you think banning porn is the right idea. Uh, well, While I mean, Matt stares daggers at you. I mean, th- <laughs> so there's the decadence argument and there's, th- this is where there there is sort of a Catholic argument and a decadence argument. And I think the Catholic argument you probably know pretty well yes. that you know so i i won't i won't rehearse the, w- that, the wages of um, sin is the death. wages of sin you yeah. know you are you are you know inherently dehumanizing blah 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 um the decadence argument which is compatible with the catholic argument but somewhat separate is that porn in the internet age has become um essentially a substitute for um forms of human gratification that are, you know, lead to actual happiness and relationships and kids and family and flourishing and all these things. And that porn basically, it has a numbing effect on the male libido that you 
keep seeking out more and more outre forms to satisfy yourself and you don't become some sort of, you know, psycho rapist as people worried in the 80s. Instead, you end up with, you know, erectile dysfunction basically and can't relate to women in the real world. Um, and that, that I think is, you know, I think there's a fair amount of not entirely dispositive but pretty indicative medical and social science research to suggest that that's the case. And, um, and that's bad. It's bad for the future. It's bad for men. It's bad for women. It's bad for everybody. So pro- why not? So why not get rid of it? But because prohibition <laughs> also is bad, right? Like, pro- the, the, it's hard to imagine a thing uh, that is uh, that is either popular, popularly done, or consumes, or a behavior that is done by tens of millions. Not just about two hundred thousand, like tens of millions. A lot of people. Um, uh, where an attempt to ban it has worked out that hasn't created terrible black markets that hasn't led to a lot more uh, danger and violence and death and also contributed to the architecture of uh, entire policing apparatuses that have made the world less free. So, yeah, I mean, that that is that's a sweeping statement. Um, I think that I'm more sympathetic to the idea that healthy regimes strike a balance between prohibition and permission, right? So it's in a healthy society, you maybe have, you know, gambling in Vegas and Atlantic City and you don't have a casino at every corner, right? In a healthy society, you don't ban alcohol entirely, but you can have blue laws and age restrictions and all of these things. Um, And I think a porn ban would end up functioning in roughly the same way, that you would not, you don't have to empower, you know, the ministry for the promotion of virtue and the prevention of vice to like hunt down pornographers in their lairs to have a world where it's a lot harder to find pornography on the internet. And the world that we live in today, like, you know, you can read pieces about this in the New York Times, the world of Pornhub and so on, is a world that in its own way encourages all kinds of sexual exploitation and, you know, human trafficking and Mm. pedophilia and so on. Um, and does, porn, does Pornhub, uh, you think, let me just take the last one you said, p- promote pedophilia? Pornhub has a, there was a, was a piece of, I'm not sure if it was in our paper or the Atlantic, um, so forgive me. But there was a piece recently that basically said, you know, porn doesn't, Pornhub does not obviously promote or condone pedophilia. It just happens that obviously lots and lots of people are attracted to women, young women in the zone between, you know, um, between maturity and non-maturity and that Pornhub ends up as a zone where you get a lot of cases that seem to look a lot like the human trafficking of minors, but it's very hard to tell and Pornhub doesn't do a lot about it. So it's creating, it's more that it's creating a space with minimal policing for a lot of bad things. Yeah, I don't have any, I don't have any of those cases in the U.S. at, at the moment. I mean, I remember very famously the case of Tracy Lords who um, had faked uh, an ID and the rest of it, and they pulled a bunch of films uh, that she made when she was, I think, 15, 16, something like that. But this is the thing about the internet. It's not, you don't have, like, you know, the sort of 
discrete population of porn stars that sort of define the pornography world of mm-hmm. the 1990s. Not that I, as a good Catholic, had any awareness of any such, <laughs> any such world. I'm saying you were I just had writing friend, a book. I had friends, right? Yeah. I was writing it's a book. It's called research. Um, so the, I mean, I the world Townsend. of Pornhub is much more. <laughs> I mean, this is, yeah, this is. I mean, this is the argument, of course, what, that people say. Well, you can't ban it because it's so democratized and widely distributed. And it's, so it's hard. Three of the top ten websites in the world are pornography websites. Right. But those websites, I mean, there's like one company in the U.S. that uh-huh. manages a bunch a bunch of those. Like there's a, a there's a sort it's, of Matt Stoller style uh-huh. anti-monopoly argument, right? It, for and it's, as soon as we knock that down, big, we'd get a bunch well, more. Well, well, well those guys core. will probably go down. Was it MindGeek? I think. Is that what it's called? MindGeek? That, that uh, John Ronson did a, oh. a podcast about them. I think they'll go down with uh, intellectual property issues because people upload stuff <laughs> that they they don't own um but no to, to to just to be clear about this but the third way okay i mean we could discuss that but the headline in your piece and it seems to be explicit we need to ban it and that's still your desire right to to, to just ban pornography and make it uh the the production of yeah I, th- I think i think that a low and you know a sort of moderately enforced ban would have the same effect as the what do you mean by moderately forms. moderately enforced i mean what i said that you would not like break into people's homes to arrest them for making amateur pornography videos that you would go after large-scale producers and i mean i think this balance exists you know in in other areas i think it would have been possible to sort of maintain a world where you had marijuana prohibition i think marijuana should be banned and i think that ban should not be enforced in the way the war on drugs was enforced for many years i think this is how's this, that going to happen though like i i want i want i mean lighter, a civil i mean a, a, i mean that a civil a well, gentle banning well i mean this is how we've this is how we handled gambling in the us before the okay. age of um, first indian reservation casinos and then casinos everywhere you had you know you weren't running massive fbi operations to eliminate the local bookie you had a few places where it was legal and i'm but the I'm, local, I'm, the local I'm happy could, could to, be i'm happy to concede yeah he could be he could, and, and go, to, could go to jail he could this. he could be arrested it's, yeah. it's certainly okay. possible for me to so as it, a uh, pornographer basically a pornographer has to assess a set of risks and he, yeah. he knows that in most cases if he's making amateur pornography he's not going to get in trouble and if he scales up his operation he is i could i could certainly imagine a universe where you knock off the really big players in the porn industry i also imagine the scope creep that inevitably happens with regimes like this where once they knock off the big guys they start to go after the medium-sized guys and then they start to go after smaller guys but even worse than that um if if we think Pornhub is a problem i don't know that the proliferation of a bunch of copycat websites is actually going to be a good thing it it strikes me that you can at least go after Pornhub and sort of strangle them a bit to invoke a, a metaphor that's particularly <laughs> Look, I, that I will happily And they settle. would probably try to get their act together. Those other folks might not. And to as, invoke as, one more piece yeah. of evidence from the New York Times, there's been a lot of really good and totally fucking terrifying reporting about child pornography and its proliferation online, its explosion online, and the fact that it is completely illegal. And we have no capacity to stop it whatsoever. So I think the the difficulty is this is actually an impossible task. And in criminalizing it even a little bit, we run the risk of driving it underground, making it much worse, and then necessarily having some risk of scope creep that makes an ever wider percentage of the population subject to punitive actions from the state, which always makes me nervous. I mean, one – 
I read those same articles and I came away convinced that like nobody was put one nobody was putting any law enforcement energy towards this and two major internet providers on whose messaging services these things were happening were facing no pressure whatsoever from public authorities to do anything about it. So I I don't think it's the case that those horrifying stories reflect the failure of law enforcement. They reflect an absence of law enforcement will and sort of pressure on pressure on companies. Now, I agree that if you extend that forward, you know, as with anything, if you're trying to catch terrorists online, right, you, you know, there's always a danger of there's always the danger of mission creep and so on. I'm just and look, you know, if you write an op-ed column, you need a you need a catchy <laughs> headline and I don't expect porn to be banned yeah. in a comprehensive way in my lifetime. But I would much rather have the problem of worrying about that the civil liberties of the amateur pornographer might be infringed than to live in a world where you know, teenagers get their sex education from pornography that is not even remotely like the pornography that hypothetical friends of mine, certainly not myself, might have gotten their sex education it's kind of like, from. It's kind of like the weed stronger the, argument. Yeah. Um, I, I will say one final point on this is that it, it, it's impossible for, for a number of reasons. But all one has to do is just offshore it, right? I mean, you can just set up a website if, uh, you know, I actually I wouldn't say Iceland because they actually made steps towards where they said that they wanted to ban pornography. And there was some talk about this in Iceland. But all you have to do is find an island somewhere and set up your sure, stuff there. Sure, but, 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 but wait a minute. Like, if if I want to buy like you know a drug online that mm-hmm. is not sold over the counter in the United yeah. States, I can do it. Yes, yes, you certainly can. You certainly can, but it requires a certain degree of effort and time and even expense in a way that like porn selling hub. selling stuff over the counter in your local pharmacy. Doesn't. I don't have so to give my have... credit card number to the Pornhub. No, no, I think he's talking. No, about, but like, I'm saying if once you on move it, if you web. move it offshore and you say it has, to, say it has to be a dot XXX website and so on. Well, that would have to be a global. I mean, why would say let, let's pretend the Swiss decided we don't care. Pornography is fine. And it would be a dot CH website and right. just be Pornhub dot CH. You don't have to you don't have to transact anything. You don't have to put your credit card out. I mean, would that be that we would somehow ban access to individual websites which would pro- proliferate well, you, overnight you and mere- need some new sort of regulatory apparatus it, it, it's it, technologically it's nearly impossible it's, not, it's nearly no, impossible no, I don't, well anyway you, you I, go after I domestic think, internet service providers you probably could do this but again yeah, I think what you're what you're domestic, demonstrating no, is the degree to which you would actually have to, well, but the degree to which you would have to actually go after so many different people to practically implement something like this that I think it fundamentally makes it unworkable but you know I, I, time I, will tell in the, in the Sorab Amari Ross Douthat impossible you. to pronounce <laughs> theocracy we will put all well, the, but I, I brought this up and I'm going to preempt you sorry uh, because I initially brought this up to say that Sorab isn't talking about 3% growth and all of the manifestos that he's signing his name to, it's pornography this, it's trade that, it's it's everything, it's immigration. Um, that's the problem with you damn trad cons out there. It's like he used it to seems, be a neocon. It seems like the, the, that what's motivating people to go after the decadence or go after whatever um, they're going after, let's take uh, decadence out of the title or out of the uh, that equation, like – What's getting people up in the morning to do their chest push-ups is <laughs> social stuff, and it's stuff yes. that's like it's get it, it's infringing on 
on my zone of freedom. It's not. Every day. Uh, in, new, every, in new ways. Every day right. in new ways. <laughs> and Saurabh wakes up. And <laughs> he says, what? When he's what not publishing not, my op-ed, he's hey, a sweet he's, guy. I appreciate right, him. Yeah, but, like, but uh, he's, he's like, I'm what? What kind of library story hour am I going to prevent Matt it is, from uh, attending today? It's a, it's a, it, it strikes me as a, as a, uh, uh, a strange thing. Yep. Um, uh, in some ways, like nodding to what you were saying before, there is an acknowledgement that the world is not the world that we lived in in 2015. And, and you and they are, are acting on this and trying to create sort of new programs and new ideas. And, and like, let's, let's shape right. the alignment in an interesting way. And I have respect for the game of doing that. <laughs> um, and, Manifestos, man, you know, they pay the bills, <laughs> but I've got kids. They got like, this is not, going to be popular and as soon as you start uh, giving the sense of like hey you're getting you're getting into Believe my grill or, so pornography is actually not that popular and you know i mean you can dispute oh, the polls, polls and so on but, <laughs> it's not that popular well but you can see mm, in polls like you, know, tab. you get you get big you get big <laughs> i mean first of all you know <laughs> Women, even now in our enlightened age, are not generally big fans of pornography. Is it one in three women consume pornography once a week? I, I, just I think people, people lie. Yeah, people also people lie. People lie. You know, this is the one lie. thing I'd lie I, about. I'm traffic if you lie. look, if you look, the at masturbation shifts, Bradley effect. <laughs> I think I think it run I think it runs the other way. Like in certainly in like the circles that we all run in, right? In sort of you know political journalism, to be against porn, let alone against masturbation, is to be like a hopeless loser in a square, right? I I don't see see it. there as all this like <laughs> social pressure to be anti pornography that would manifest itself in opinion polls. But let's setting setting that aside. I am I think to the extent that this book sort of hints at an agenda, and it's not a manifesto. Right. This is not. Yes, I want to make right. that Listeners that clear. Listeners of this podcast, and the, and the book is you can not about buy this porn. book. Yeah. It's not about banning porn. Yeah. You don't. I'm not going to. I'm it's not going to lecture you. It's just implied <laughs> on page 213 or 169. Um, it is. I think the implication is that the trad cons are getting something right about sort of the cultural problems with our decadence. But in fact, the conservative impulse towards a sort of pastoralism, towards a like, you know, let's let's get back to the farms and the, you know, the old ways of life and so on. I don't I have some attractions in that direction, um, but I, I don't find it very plausible. And mm-hmm. I think ultimately there is actually a weird kind of it's it's a little bit like the old libertarian social conservative fusionism, but it's I think also different that like a figure like Peter Thiel sort of embodies, right? This view that like Actually, religion and science aren't, you know, enemies or rivals or something, Mm -hmm. but that a society that's more religious might also be more scientifically curious and vice versa. That there's something there's something out there that I agree. I don't think the trad cons have quite grasped, but it's more than it has to be more than just banning porn as wonderful as that might be. Oh, terrible. Um, <laughs> but, how, but how do you feel like, I mean, when you survey just the conservative landscape and not just sort of opinion polls of, of the average American, I mean, these messages, and particularly now when you see a Republican Party that doesn't look anything like it did 10 years ago, I mean, do you see that this message resonates with people or, you know, the Republican president is the one paying off porn stars? Speaking of porn. Yeah, I, I mean, I it's think hard, it must be a hard time to, to, to be in this position. <laughs> Right or to be uh, making a hard, a hard, a hard time, <laughs> yes. if, you, if you will. Well, that's a hard the position. name of, the name yeah. of my book. That's the <laughs> a hard time in this hard, position. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's only published in Bulgaria. Oh my yeah. god! <laughs> so I, I mean, I think 
I guess part of it is I do actually think that not banning porn, but restricting porn would be more popular than, say, rolling back same-sex marriage. I, I think that one of the things that the trad cons are arguing is that there are things that social conservatives could be in favor of that would be more helpful than refighting some lost battles on other issues. So there is, And that's a battle you consider lost, right? Which battle? Same-sex same sex marriage. marriage. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, in the current political moment. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's no, like, you know. In cosmic time, maybe sure. not, but mm. but yeah, I don't. Obergefell isn't going to be isn't going to be overturned. Um, so there's some of that, um, but I also think. I mean, I think Trump. You know, again, I, I think populism sort of moves back and forth between the poll that you know you find frightening of like let's just keep what we have and close the borders and so on, uh-huh. and a poll that. Uh, um, and I mean like polls like the North and South Pole, not like voting polls, but and, mm-hmm. and a vision that's, you know, a little more of let's recapture that moon landing magic, right? Like Trump's speeches, his his State of the Union is a ridiculous overripe State of the Union, did both. One minute it was like, you know, the immigrant killers are coming are coming for your family. And the next minute it was like, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to build and we're going to do great things. And, and and it's all very, in Trump's case, it's sort of vague and ridiculous and, you know, may end in catastrophe. Um, but I don't think it's, I don't think the populist right is sort of comprehensively anti-growth. I think it's sort of, there are moments when it's sort of reactive and wants to just do redistribution and make the family great again. And then there are moments, I think, when it, sort of is trying to see a larger picture where, you know, if it's spending more money on the family, it's to make society younger and more dynamic so mm-hmm. that we can go to the moon again or something like that. I, I think there's something there that, again, isn't doesn't fit into a manifesto and maybe something for, like, the politics of 2055, which this book is sort of trying to anticipate from within decadence. Can we, can we talk about escape velocity in the context of the book? Like how do we get out of the decadent circumstance that we find ourselves in where there's no growth and we're not making new things and we're not making good films anymore. Although (laughs) I would, I would disagree with you about the cultural decadence. (laughs) I think there are two problems. One, all of the great movies are now great television shows and we have some very spectacular television shows. A lot of amazing things happening there. I think you gotta, you gotta give it credit to it's also the case that even though we're, we're retreading a lot of old things and we're bringing back all these old these old franchises, yep. there's a lot of great new stuff that's being made in a lot of great new places. I think there's probably a lot more out there on the cultural scene than, than you're giving credit for. But perhaps you can respond to that, but also talk <laughs> about how we get out of this situation. So with TV, I feel like their TV has been greater in my and less decadent Would than you say film, great again than film yeah I, well i think the golden age of tv was like great again for for a moment in the sense that sopranos deadwood those kind of shows were recapturing sort of godfather era Hollywood, Galactica, great stuff yep yep um the expanse another yeah but i i i mean my sense is that we are now in as we've moved from golden age of tv to peak tv there are still good shows i i can cite you know, five or six shows right now that I think are terrific. But there's also more of a kind of, you know, algorithmically generated content that um, where so many shows are getting made that the talent pool of writers is getting stretched really thin. So it used to be that you could get like five great writers to write, you know, to write for David Chase and The Sopranos. And now they each have their own Netflix show. And I feel like those shows are not, I don't know, I watch a lot of the Netflix shows 
I don't think I don't think they're that great. I mean, I would say, you know, what stacks up? I think, you know, Atlanta if we ever get another season, it's probably probably fit is is at the same level as Golden Age. You know, I'll see things from time to time like the first season of The Terror was really good, but I I think that there was I think we've fallen off a bit in television from 10 years ago. But I could I could be wrong. We have little kids, I may just not be consuming enough. Mm-hmm. Um and and but then, yeah, to, I'll just do the escape velocity. I think you need something that's disjunctive, basically, that like something unexpected that takes you in a new direction a little bit. I don't I think if you just sort of extend trends forward, like, you know, Will's 2 percent growth, we stay decadent for a long time. So you need, you know, a cascade of inventions, not just like slightly faster Internet or a slightly sleeker iPhone, but a big alternative energy or genomics revolution that changes not like a few frontier medical cases, but everyday life. Right. Or in politics, you need an actual successful political realignment of some kind. You you know, we've had the same basic liberal versus conservative breakdown since the conservative movement took over the Republican Party in the 70s. And Trump and Sanders, different ways, even Bloomberg are sort of suggesting different different approaches but you, you, we keep coming back to the same gridlock. And so you need something to move beyond it. You need populism to be effective. You need socialism to solve its, you know, its basic problems. You need libertarianism to be supported by slightly more Americans, right? You need, you need some shift that makes – or maybe you just need a de Gaulle figure, a kind of dominant political force who can sort of force Congress into activity. But you need something like that to shift things. And then, you know, in religion, you would need a religious revival. If you just extend the state of my own church forward, Catholicism is in the West is it's a decadent church. It's big and old and um, has pockets of resilience, but the larger institution is in decay. So you need a Francis of Assisi or uh, Ignatius of Loyola to come along. Uh, so, So you need... Yeah, you need – I think there are a lot of ways that decadence ends and probably the way it ends is with all these things happening together. You have scientific breakthroughs and unexpected religious dynamism and a political realignment all happening together and suddenly people say, wow, we're back in you know, the world of 3 or 4% growth and things are really happening again. Um, yeah, I don't know. But I don't I, think there's I, yeah. like one thing you can just do and say, all right, now decadence is over. You need – you need disjunction. You need transformation. Can I just say quickly that I don't think the socialists can fix their fundamental problem? <laughs> right. No, I, I, problem. I obviously it's baked into the pie. Yeah, I don't think so either. But but maybe with AI, um, right? That's well, that's, <laughs> that's the post decadence future. The AI that I've, lets socialism. I've work. heard I've heard Peter refer to AI and say that he is his his biggest fear is that the singularity will not happen fast enough. That we have to depend on these technological innovations to actually give us the next big massive boost of productivity. So while Andrew Yang and company continue to fear the robots, yeah. um, no, Peter the robots are not are coming. For the robots, so. I and people, but people don't. People are surprised by that. Like I was on Bill Maher, and I didn't. I think people. I sounded like a crazy person. So someone was praising Yang, mm-hmm. and I like Yang. Yeah. But as a guy, right, like he's entertaining, he's interesting, he's smart. Yeah, yeah. But I was saying, you know, his big idea is wrong. The robots, they aren't coming and right now. Productivity cars, growth super, is low. And, super delayed. Yeah. And people, people don't, but people were like, what are you talking about? There's yeah. tons of automation. And there is. It's just not on the scale that 
he's imagining, I think. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that, that the technological innovation uh, bit, and I haven't looked at this stuff where I know these kind of numbers over a long period of time, but just a medical innovation is that my life has become so much easier in the past 10 years because of medical innovation. And, and a lot of that is because of um, the openness of code and the internet, and particularly with the creation and, and the attempts at creating on Reddit and subreddits, on threads of people ch exchanging code. And they're actual, you know, companies taking their code and using the code that has been created by these diabetics on trying to create an artificial pancreas. And my father died um, of diabetes-related complications in 2012 or 13. And, you know, just in the amount of time since then to now, my life as a diabetic has changed you know, in the most enormous ways. And there's a, a million little things too yeah. that have changed that I, and again, I don't, I'm not making some sort of larger point in this, but just from my own personal experience, um, I thank God every day for drug companies and I thanked, and you know, these are not, play, you know, institutions without their flaws, enormous mm -hmm. flaws, mm -hmm. but you know, the innovation that has, is absolutely prolonged my life. I'm very, very grateful for, and I'm very, very happy to live in this moment. And that's my little Steven Pinker bit yeah, <laughs> about no, medical and, and and this is and this is important, right? As a qualifier, I try and make in the book, but mm -hmm. but I can make here, which is that even under decadence, there are fields and areas and industries that are not decadent, and yeah. there are places where there's been real medical progress, and there's also ways in which you know mm -hmm. I have have had for going on five years Lyme disease, which is a Ooh. exciting an exciting illness that officially uh, the chronic form where you have it for which five officially years, doesn't exist officially but, doesn't yeah, exist yeah. right, but in fact totally does. And what's been striking in trying to get better, and I have gotten a lot better, is that you know the internet, which I think feeds into decadence in various ways in my quests to figure out what kind of treatments for Lyme disease works has been immensely helpful. And there, I think the challenge is how do you integrate some of the stuff that sort of crowdsourcing and the internet has provided into a sort of sclerotic and ossified medical establishment. And that, and that's maybe that's how you get out of decadence in some cases too, that like the raw materials are out there, but the institutions don't know how to sort of take them up. And, and all, that's, and, my, and, and that's often, my next book. And is, often regulations that prevent you right. from, from, you know, participating well, in, in some of these. Well, which these we're seeing with the, with the coronavirus right now, right? Like there are, you know, one to three drugs that are being used in China to treat this. And some of the patients here have gotten them, but there are all kinds of FDA reasons why doctors aren't just going to give them to patients, even when the patients are dying. And that's sort of an extreme version of something that's very commonplace in any in any medical condition, basically. Mm. That there's again, be, there are good reasons for this. You know, you don't want doctors just treating patients like guinea pigs, but you have a loss of, I think, medical experimentation with mm. regulation that costs you something, costs you potential breakthroughs. I mean, I was always shocked to find that. You know, when living in Europe and and the, the famous, and I think it was actually Boris Johnson piece in the Telegraph that actually started this kind of myth of the the banana curve. Do you remember this? Oh yeah, yeah. that the uh, the EU is saying it's not a, it has to be oh, curved. This right, that's right. Um, <laughs> and all these EU regulations and and famously people, you know, um, printing them out and going across Brussels and just sort of boxes and boxes and boxes of them. Is that the stuff that I a number of the things that I use as a diabetic were um, um, available to European patients. Uh, uh, long before I, mm -hmm. I was able to get them. So. Yeah. So. I, I wanted to, to pivot to something here, Ross, 
you wrote a piece, The Case for Joe Biden, in February. And yes. that is a little bit before Joe Biden popped and sort of returned as the obvious savior of the republic, the savior of the Democratic Party. Um, I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. And when I, when I was reading the piece, the last section of it stood out to me. Finally, the strongest argument for Biden is non-ideological. More than any other candidate, he offers the possibility of a calmer presidency where politics fades a bit from the headlines, where the average American is less bombarded by social media swarms and cable news freakouts, where gridlock and polarization persist, but their stakes feel modestly reduced. I had hoped that the silver lining of the Trump presidency might be that when people saw him overreach in yep. various areas, they would say, oh, my God, that freaks me out. We we actually probably ought to limit the scope of the executive branch. But instead, it's left <laughs> many people clamoring for revolution. They want more. And even as they are watching the the executive overreach and seeing it happen in various areas, they want new prohibitions and they imagine new agencies that will fix all of their problems um, so, unfortunately, that hasn't panned out. Perhaps this is a better way forward. Is that better way forward? Politics fading into the background actually going to catapult us out no, of the problem no, we no, find no. ourselves it's, in? Or is it's, it just it's, a temporary it's, it's solve? It's a temporary solve. Okay. And, and I, I tried to be explicit about this in the co- column. Biden does not solve any of the problems. <laughs> not, not at all. And he doesn't. And the problem you describe, he doesn't solve either. Like he'll except insofar as he won't be able to do that much, right? So it's not that Biden will have a principled view of the presidency's limits, but he'll come in without some, you know, without a grand ideological force at his back like Sanders would have. Um, presumably gridlock will persist and he won't he won't get that much done, but he won't get that much done in a way that is less sort of deranging than the way that Trump hasn't gotten much done or Sanders wouldn't get much done. So my basic view is if you assume that no president can get that much done, either in terms of doing anything with the office or in terms of reducing its power, then after the madness of Trump, you know, having having Biden in there being a little too old for the job and not being as polarizing a figure as Trump or Sanders would be, it, it buys us some space. And maybe in that space, other aspects of decadence could be dealt with. Maybe, you know, there's creative energy that right now is being driven into mad anti-Trump tweets that could be driven into better TV shows on Netflix, right? <laughs> like maybe maybe there's political energy that should be directed towards churches and synagogues, right? Yeah. Maybe Maybe there's... Maybe there's technological energy that, you know, if, if D.C. fades a little from the national consciousness could be unleashed. But that's to the extent that you're looking for a different form of politics from the one we have now. Biden is obviously the wrong choice. It's I mean, just it's, that it's just he's different from he's different from the the Trumpish heightening of everybody's insanity, probably. But how, how do you judge? I mean, this is a very, very big, broad question. And I've I've read I read your column. And I know this sort of individual columns on individual moments in the Trump presidency. But looking back at the Trump presidency right now, coming up in, to an election, I mean, how do you judge these past four years? I mean, I think that, I mean, myself, I slightly less catastrophic than I thought it was going to be. Um, still not happy with it it's in any way. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah. give it time. Give it, give it probably a week. But I mean, when you look back on it, is it how are you how do you judge it in a sort of broad, broad sense? 
I would say, yeah, one less catastrophic than I expected um, when he was elected. Um, again, w but something like the way he is handling the coronavirus is exactly the kind of catastrophic behavior that I expected when I was against him in 2016. So there's a sense in which he still seems like you're, you're rolling the dice, basically, with him, and you're just hoping that something doesn't come along or when it comes along that it dies off of its own accord, as maybe, God willing, the virus will over the summer. Um, but yeah, less less catastrophic, less also less transformative. Uh, I thought he would change the Republican Party a bit more um, and it's on policy and it's more that he's gotten them to acquiesce to some things on trade and so on. But fundamentally, they're... Trumpism may exist in the minds of, you know, the populists and tradcons and, you know, people who are trying to create a Trumpism after Trump. I think it's been a really interesting time for conservative arguments, even if the manifestos are repetitive. Um, but in terms of policy, I mean, his policy has been a large deficit finance corporate tax cut and an attempt to repeal Obamacare, right? Like that's just convention. And There's some immigration change. Yeah. Immigra yes, immigration has changed, but that is... I guess my view is the way that's been done is like what Obama did on immigration, something that Joe Biden will come in and immediately Quickly reverse. Yeah. Yeah. So it is, it is a shift, but it's... But the DNA of the party you don't see is fundamentally different. I mean, this is a kind of... I think Trump showed... I think Trump proved something that you could take over the party without being a movement conservative. And get them to do most anything. And agree and, on and most And get anything. them to agree on various things. But I think that... I think if... I think you would still need – like if you were a sort of populist Republican in 2024, you wouldn't just get to say, well, now we're populist. You have to do what I want. Um, there would there would be a, still be a strong snapback. Like most Republicans in Congress, most Republican senators think the party is fine and it was fine in 2016 and Trump just, you know, is too noisy on Twitter and, and is, you know, an asshole basically. Mm. Like – and so – there's probably like five senators who have ideas of what the party should be after Trump. And um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think if it's Nikki Haley against Joe Biden in 2024, it will feel like Trump didn't have a lasting impact. So his impact in that sense will be determined by the battle over his succession, which, of course, will be won by Don Jr. And, you know, so, so all <laughs> ideological. I was watching. Please, coronavirus, take me now. <laughs> man, I was watching him on Jim Vandehey, like the Axios or HBO. Yeah, they have HBO a partnership? Like, yeah, 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 where he was like he was challenging Hunter Biden to a debate. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I can see him doing well in a Republican primary. I think it's going to be Ivanka. I don't think I don't think, think Ivanka, Ivanka is where the. It's, she doesn't have the piece of Trump that worked so well in a primary field. Um, is, is there not a part of you that <laughs> saying that, even half believing that yes. or even a quarter believing that, <laughs> yes. makes you think, you know what? Maybe the Republican Party needs to not exist for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what is that? What is that? No, no. There's a part of me saying that that makes me think I'm going to go write books about – Lyme disease and maybe some novels yeah. and mm -hmm. not, not, you know, if Fair somebody enough. would. A novel about Lyme disease. A novel about Lyme disease, yeah. right. Um, <laughs> Bodice ripper. <laughs> tick, tick bites. Yes. <laughs> tick bites stood out on her. It's a little bit of the late Evelyn Ward, a little bit <laughs> Lyme disease. Wonderful. But parties don't just, that's the problem. Like it makes me, yeah, it makes me not want to write about politics maybe, but parties don't, you know, the Democrat, when liberals are like, we must destroy the Republican Party, like nobody's going to destroy 
destroy the Republican oh. Party. I wonder if that's what seemed like Republican they might have been on their party. way to destroying themselves for a little while. I, I wonder how many um, uh, 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 sort of what's her name, Neera Tandon type. Is that her name? Is yes, that, her name? Yeah. that is her name. Uh, uh, those type of Democrats, sort of Hillary um, surrogates, would become Larry Kudlow's in a Sanders administration. I mean, Larry Kudlow Lots made of a career of being a free trader and then decided to take a job as a professional protectionist. And I'm like, you know, it but kind it shows- of made me, in one way, uh, uh, respect John Bolton, is that he took the job and he was still an asshole. And he like <laughs> he was still John Bolton at the end of it. And they were like, okay, we can't deal with you anymore. Whereas Larry Kudlow is like, what do you want me to do? I'll do whatever. You want me to bury the body? I'll bury the body. And I wonder if there are people like that in the Democratic establishment that would be like, you know what? Let me become a Democrat- Democratic Socialist for four years. They're ab- I think they're absolutely... Probably. I, I, pro- I think so, yeah. Well, and part of it is... What you learned with Cudlow and, you know, Art Laffer and Stephen Moore, Moore, right, is that, well, they cared about tax cuts, right? They had a larger worldview, but the thing they cared about was tax cuts. And, you know, you can imagine similar, a similar issue. Like there are Democrats, you know, for whom abortion, right? Sanders, Sanders will be a very pro-choice president and they're there for that, right? Like, I mean, that, I think, I think that's often the case that you have people who sort of build a worldview around a single issue, but the single issue is what matters. And the other stuff like, well, free trade or, you know, I'm for liberal immigration policy. When push comes to shove, Trump, if Trump hadn't run on tax cuts, they would not, like, they, it's not that they're entirely without principle, you're right. right. I, I, I talked Trump to, ran on tax cuts. I talked to Art Laffer about this, and he said the only thing that mattered to him was the tax cut. Yeah. And he was saying to me, he's like, but Michael wasn't. It's amazing, right? I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. I'm just interviewing you. I'm not going to. And, and I was like, yeah, but the, saying the, the tax cut is yeah, amazing. Tax cut amazing. Yeah. And he was like, and he was, and, he, and I was like, but you know, the trade war stuff. And he's like, yeah, I warned him about that. That's bad. But the tax cut, and he kept going back to it and back to it. And by the way, an amazingly fun guy to interview. And whether or not you, you like, like him, you like everybody. I do like everybody, but I really, really got on with uh, Art Laffer because he was incredibly fun, and uh, even we we fought uh, quite a bit. But he he he's a fun guy. This he's is, a very clever guy. This is an an underestimated aspect of how sort of ideological battles play out. Right? Is that you know if you look at the wars over the future of the Republican Party in the seventies and eighties, right? And you know I have friends who are paleocons, yeah. and the paleocons famously lost those wars, and. They lost them because, you know, the supply siders and the neocons were just like often nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they were nice people. And the paleocons were like, well, I'm obviously right. And yeah, Western yeah. civilization's going down yeah. the toilet. And that, so, I mean, that's, that's something. Well, I remember think, Jacob Heilbrunn wrote a book about the neocons and the title of the book was They Knew They Were Right. Yeah. <laughs> so they had that sense too. And it's funny that the paleocons sort of ultimately win in this sense because the only Republican that, uh, you know, of any consequence that in the sort of popular imagination was talking about trade stuff was Pat Buchanan. Right. You know, and it was like... But, the, they, yeah, the but they win, but in the end, Trump doesn't want to bring a bunch of paleocons yeah. into his administration. Yeah, he yeah. brings in, you know, the... I mean, for him, it's like he likes the, you know, Republican Study Committee Tea Party guys. He mm. likes Mark Meadows, and that's just sort of a a, a purely personal bond, I think, mm. with no ideological content. Um, but that stuff is underrated in ideological debates, which is why I try to be friendly while <laughs> taking away all of your, <laughs> your points. That, that's a good, material, a right? good transition to a question that I want to know. We're kind of uh, coming up on time here. Yeah, few, you try to be few minute warning. You, you, you try to be friendly, Ross. The question that I <laughs> that I think when I when I think of you, I think, what is it like 
for Rostov every day to open that <laughs> door in Midtown and walk into the New York Times building and see the people. I mean, do you what is it like to be a Catholic conservative columnist who gets a fair bit of heat and you must have thanked jesus when uh when brett stevens uh took a little bit off you brett brett has brett has been a a wonderful wonderful addition barry barry's helped barry and brett barry barry too no they're used to be just gentlest most wonderful people i've ever known in my life but but is it tough being uh sort of a really No, no i mean look I obviously have like certain mechanisms of um, social media management where I don't sit there. I don't read all the comments on my columns. I don't, you know, open up Twitter and look at my mentions, um, even on days when I haven't written something controversial. So I. Why don't you? Because, I mean, one, it's bad for your psyche to be sort of barraged all the time. Two, when people. The job, you know, as you guys know well, like the job of the columnist is not to like write a column and then spend a week agonizing over like, oh, I said this <laughs> right, but this wrong. And I need to argue about this point and so on. I mean, that's fun. Like that that was what the blogosphere was good for back in the day. But I write two columns a week and I, you know, I record a podcast. My job is to have another opinion. And if I got something wrong, I should, you know, mention that I got it wrong and correct it. But you could spend, you know all day sort of <laughs> reckoning with the reasonable criticisms of your columns and you would never really get anywhere. So yeah, it's both it's both sort of psychological but also just a practicality you, you of the job. You can choose not to look at your mentions, which is right. something that I, yes. I, I do um, too. I mean, I read, But your colleagues I, are different, right? You have to go into a building in which I would think oh, most of the people well, don't I, agree well, with you on well, one, most issues. So one, I, I lived in D.C. for a long time. Now I live in New Haven, Connecticut. So I don't walk into the New York Times every day. Mm-hmm. Um... So if you know they all secretly hate me, I, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not encountering that. But I'm sure two, there's a, but two, a, a Ross Slack the, channel. The, <laughs> the, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, the, I, I, my, I say this with complete sincerity. My working relationships at the Times have always been great. I get along well with my, you know, colleagues, copy editors, fact checkers, uh, bosses. Um, and I, I really have no there, – there's you – know, there, I mean they hired me as a – not just a conservative but as like a religious conservative for the page. So it mm-hmm. was always I think clear that they wanted me to have opinions that were somewhat eccentric for New York Times readers. And I don't know if I've always carried out that role perfectly but I'm trying to you know, write for people who disagree with me. And I think the paper in general, you know, slacked, some slack chats aside – has been has been hospitable. Um, and the other thing is, like, you know, I'm a columnist for the New York Times, right? Like, I have a great job. Yes. And a certain amount of criticism, you just, like, that's just comes with the territory. People, I, of yeah. course people should be able to say mean things about me on Twitter. The reason I ask in a way is that because I think it's special with the New York Times. And there's something very different in the New York Times. If you are a conservative columnist at the Washington Post, people care less than if the New York Times. There's a sense of ownership in a way. If there's a, if you write a piece or if Barry wrote a piece or Brett wrote a piece that everyone hated or, or, or sort of New York Times readers would hate and they published the Wall Street Journal it would not even, you know, make a noise. Sure. But when it, it's on the New York Times page, you're like, hey, this is our territory. You can't be saying that here. And even in the post, I think you can't fight in here. This is I get that sense in the New York Times that it's a special type 
of hostility that I would never be able to deal with. Yes, but I think it I don't think it's just it is about being a conservative, obviously, because our readership is you know, somewhat tilted towards the left. Um, but like, you know, Liz Brunick, <laughs> who um, who I'm friendly with, who works yeah. at The Washington Post as a columnist and now works at The Times. Like I, you know, she I mean, she's. Catholic, she's Catholic, she's, she? she's yeah. Catholic, and so there are ways in which she's socially conservative. But you know, right now she's like a Bernie, you know, a big Bernie supporter. Yeah. So she, you know, she's a she's a woman of the left, and I I th- I think that going to the Times, like it changes the kind of attention she gets too. Like she'll tweet something, and people will say, "Can you believe that a New York Times columnist yes. is tweeting this?" Which is, I don't think people say that as much about other newspapers. There's a sense in which, like, you know. People, I mean, people, especially now that other newspapers have shrunk and we've grown so big, people have this, not just not just a certain kind of liberal, has a, you know, this sort of love-hate relationship with the Times mm-hmm. where, you know, they love to read us. But if somebody at the Times does something they don't like, they love to to sort of point that out, too. So I think there's not a lot of like, can you believe the guy from the Hartford Current? (laughs) 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 What a jerk. But I think it's more I think conservatives get more of it, but I think it's comprehensive and just comes with the territory. Well, we should probably wrap up so we can let you go because we've been going for a little while Um, on the off chance that you do stop by the building while you're here in town and you see Nicole Hannah-Jones in the hall. (laughs) Yes. If you could just let her know. Yes. Camille Foster would still very much like to talk to her. I, I, on the podcast. I, I will. I have never met her, but the first time I meet her, that will be my opening <laughs> that, line. That's all you should say. And then just walk I'll away. I'll be like, yeah. I'll be like, yeah. No, I, and thus the creation of, of, of a new Slack channel. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anything you want to get off your chest before we leave? Have we slandered you in any way? Have your views been misrepresented I, on this podcast? If they have been, I've been the one doing the misrepresenting. Amen. So, no, this, is, this has been terrific. I hope, I hope you guys have enjoyed having thank me you. on. Thank you. Thank you, yeah. for, thank you for coming by. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we will forward any uh, email from our our very uh, active uh, listener base. They like sending emails mm. if they disagree with something. Oh, ter- ter- yeah. I can't imagine. When they they can't can't imagine what they disagree they with. They can't have disagreed they with anything say things I when said. they like stuff. No, they do. But, but what I'm expecting is like, um, I think we've come to an understanding with our li- a lot of our listeners now <laughs> when they say like, why didn't you, when Ross was talking about pornography, <laughs> punch him in the face, <laughs> drag him outside, tar and feather him, and, and then put porn on. And video, like videotape the whole yeah, thing, yeah. upload it, yeah. <laughs> Pornhub back. Stalliano's a listener. So. Yeah, well, tar yes. and feather. Kids. We have some uh, uh, porn moguls uh, who, who listen. Yes, terrific. Yeah. One in particular. Yeah, yeah. So well, anyway. well, right. here's here's to you, porn mogul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your days are numbered, but, but John, it's a lot of it's a lot of numbers. John, if you want. Uh, I'll give you Ross's uh, email yeah, address let's, let's, because let's, by the by the way, <laughs> I think there was one one time where I did um, a one on one actually with John Ronson and our friend um, sent me an email a very long email and said, you know, why did you not challenge him? And it was not about, cause John had done two uh, podcast series for audible about the porn industry. John Ronson. Yes. Yep. John Ronson. And, um, and I didn't, I, I let him kind of talk because John's a fantastic storyteller and a great, mm-hmm. it's a great, it was a fun episode. And, uh, and our friend uh, was very, was very annoyed with me for not raking him over the coals. And I'm like, eh, what, what can I do? Why, why will no one stand up for the honor of the porn industry? <laughs> that's what I, that's what that's I wonder point. every day. I'm, I'm here to stand in the breach for right. them. <laughs> I am. Yeah. I am. Yeah. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. 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 We, we know of new methods of attacks.